Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. So today I will be reading from Neville Goddard's lecture, Three Propositions. This lecture is a little bit longer, so I will be splitting it into two podcast episodes. This lecture was also recorded in 1954. I don't have an exact date, but again, it was 1954. And uh, Neville tells his audience, well, my first proposition is this one. The individual state of consciousness determines the conditions and the circumstances of his life. The second proposition is that man can select the state of consciousness with which he desires to be identified. And the third follows naturally, therefore a man can be what he wants to be. If the first proposition is true, that the individual state of consciousness is the sole cause of the phenomena of his life, then the normal, natural question that is asked, why doesn't he change it to a more desirable state if he could change it? Well, that is not as easy as it appears. Today, we hope to give you a technique to make it easier, but man finds it very hard to leave the things to which he has grown accustomed. We are all grown stuck in the habitual. It may seem strange, but a very sordid cartoon appeared years ago. That is during the last war. You might have seen it. It came out in the New Yorker and it was won by George Price. In it is one single little room, a sink piled high with unwashed dishes, plaster falling from the walls, and these two middle-aged people, she sitting on a chair reading a letter, disheveled, matted hair, and he with torn clothes and feet stuck upon the table and socks exposing holes. And the caption of the picture is this. She is reading a letter from her soldier son abroad. He says he's homesick. Now you should see the interior of this house. One room, completely disheveled, but the lad was homesick. Now man finds it difficult to detach himself from the habitual. So this morning we have brought you these three propositions. And I hope I can make it clear that you can, with this knowledge, apply it so that you can realize your very objective. It is the height of folly to expect changes to come about by mere passage of time. For that which requires a state of consciousness to produce its effect cannot be effective without such a state of consciousness. So if I must be in the consciousness of the thing that I'm seeking before I find it, then the only thing to do is to acquire that state of consciousness. Most of us do not even know what we mean by state of consciousness. To those who are here for the first time, it is simply meant by state of consciousness, the sum total of all that a man believes and accepts and consents to as true. Now, it need not be true. It may be, but it need not be true. It could be false. It could be a half-truth. It could be a lie. It could be a superstition. It could be a prejudice. But the sum total of all that a man believes constitutes his state of consciousness. It is the house in which he abides, and as long as he remains in that house, similar problems will confront him. The circumstances of life will remain the same. He may move physically across the ends of the earth, but he will encounter similar conditions. He can't get away from the house in which he abides. The Bible speaks of these houses as mansions of the Lord. It, spe- it speaks of them as cities. It speaks of them as rooms, as upper rooms. All kinds of words are used to describe individual states of awareness. 
and the appeal in the Bible is always to move out and occupy the upper story, meaning to move up to a higher level within oneself. Now, if you do not know the state in which you abide, it's a very simple technique you may employ to discover that state. For the man dwelling in a state, and we all dwell in states, could easily discover the state by listening within himself and, and observing his own internal mental conversations, for the state is singing its own song, and it reveals itself in man's inner speech. If you will listen attentively and uncritically to what inwardly you are saying, you will discover the state. And it will not surprise you that things are as they are for you, or for you will hear within yourself the cause of the phenomena of life. So that what you are inwardly saying and doing is far more important than what you outwardly know or seemingly outwardly express. So when a man knows what inwardly he is doing, then he can change it. If you have never uncritically observed your reactions to life, if you are totally unaware of your subjective behavior, then you are unaware of the cause of the things in your world. But if you become aware of the state, then you simply go about changing it. Now, here's a technique I have found most helpful, and I find that it works like a miracle. Anyone can do it. I know that some of you here possibly come from extreme orthodox walks of life, and it may seem strange to you even to be here, but I assure you, you are not alone. Many of your leaders in the orthodox field seek an audience with the speaker. Many a rabbi has seen or has been in my home, many a priest and many a Protestant leader. Many of them, they come to my home for interpretations of the book that publicly they wouldn't dare give any interpretation other than the most extreme literal interpretation. So don't be surprised if you hear things here that might startle you. Your leaders are startled, but this is a technique I have found most helpful. First of all, man stands forever in the presence of an infinite and internal energy from which energy all things proceed, but it follows definite patterns. It just doesn't move out of man and crystallize in things in some strange haphazard manner. It follows a definite track, and the track it follows is laid down by the man himself in his own internal conversations. So though man is called upon to change his thinking, that he may change his world, for we are told, be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. Man can't change his thinking unless he changes his ideas or he thinks from his from his ideas. So if I would change and become transformed, I must lay new tracks. And the tracks I lay are always laid down in my own internal conversation. So what am I saying now when seemingly I am alone? I can sit in that chair or stand here or walk the streets and I can't stop talking. Man does not realize that he is talking. Because he is never still enough to listen to the voice speaking within himself, but inwardly he is whispering what outwardly is taking place as conditions and circumstances. Most of the things he whispers are negative and justifying his behavior. There's no need to justify. He is excusing delay or excusing failure, or he is arguing, or he is judging harshly, or he is condemning. Many of us have secret affection for hurts. We don't want to be liked by certain people. We just wouldn't like it if they liked us. 
We just don't want certain things to take place in our world, even though they may bring a greater comfort and a greater satisfaction. Man has a peculiar, strange feeling, a little affection for the feeling of being unwanted or the feeling of being hurt, and he likes to talk about it. Well, try to pull that man out of that habitual state. It would be just as difficult as to keep that soldier boy away from that sordid room. He goes back into the sordid rooms within himself. You don't see dishes unwashed within yourself, but if you could only see the internal psychological state in which most of us abide, we would see a room far dirtier than the one that George Price illustrated in the New Yorker magazine. They are all unwashed plates within us. On the outside, we wash them, but we are told in the Bible, we leave the inside unwashed and we become whited sepulchers. Now, if I sincerely desire to change my world, there is no one in my world I need to change but myself. So that I don't need to change you as an individual, but I do need to change my attitude towards you. If you dislike me, or if I think you dislike me, or if your behavior offends me, the cause of my offense is not in you and your behavior, but I must look for that cause within myself. Now, if I seriously and I'm honest about my search, I will find it, and I will find that inwardly when I think of you. There's never a pleasant conversation that I carry on with you. So let me sit down now and bring you before my mind's eye. I said, bring you before the mind's eye. Let me imagine a conversation which would imply a radical change in my world. I'm going to bring you up and change my attitude toward you by laying new tracks relative to you. These tracks will then become the tracks across which this eternal energy will pour. An energy which is only thinking, moving across the tracks, laid down in my own inner conversations, will result in changes in my outer world. Now, if I repeat the conversations and do it more often, then it becomes a habit. And I will find that when I am about my father's business in the outer world, I am inwardly, through habit, carrying on these changed and lovelier conversations. Now, a transformation of consciousness will definitely result in a change of environment and conditions. But I mean transformation of consciousness. Do not mean a slight alteration of consciousness like a change of mood. It is nice to change a mood from some unlovely to a lovely, but I want a transformation. And by transformation, I mean that when one state into which I have moved and move so often that it becomes a habit and that state grows stable so that it expels from my consciousness all of its rivals, then that central habitual state defines my character and really constitutes my new world. It spells out a transformation. But if I only do it a little bit and return to my former state, then I might have had a temporary lift, but I will not notice radical changes in my outer world. I will notice these changes in my outer world if inwardly I have truly changed. Then without effort on my part, I will find the outer world changing to correspond to the changes that took place within me. So you bear it in mind. I can't stress it too often. I can't give it too great importance. This wonderful thing called man's ability to talk within himself and without the aid of anyone in the world. Sitting alone at home, you can construct a sentence which would imply the fulfillment of the ideal. You can construct a sentence 
which would imply that a friend I bless that she was that she has realized her objective. That the thing you know she wants, she has. So what would she say to you had she realized it? Well, you listen attentively, as though you heard, and you will really hear if you are still enough, you will hear as coming from without what really you are whispering from within yourself. Man is this wonderful temple in which all the work takes place, and the outer world is only a projection of the work done within himself. This, called present man, unfortunately is asleep. It is told us so beautifully in the Bible that Adam slept in the second chapter of Genesis, or that Adam slept in the second chapter of Genesis. He was placed into a profound sleep from which he has not been awakened. There is no reference in the Bible where Adam was ever awakened from his sleep, but there is a reference where he awoke, but not as Adam. He awoke as a second man called Christ Jesus. So in Christ, they awake, in Adam, all sleep. But a man who is totally unaware of the mental activity that goes on within him is the one who sleeps as Adam. He doesn't know it. He walks with his eyes wide open. He may be a very important person in the world. He may be wealthy. He may be famous. He may have all the things that you admire. But if he is totally unaware of that mental activity, which is the cause of the phenomena of his life, that man that man is sound asleep and he is personified as Adam. And he will read his Bible and think it's a literal story. He will read where Adam was put to sleep and from Adam a rib was taken and a woman was formed called Eve. But when a man begins to awake, he realizes that this symbolic Eve of the Bible is only his own emanation, now called by the name of nature. And nature is his slave and must fashion life about him as he fashions it within himself. But if he is asleep, he fashions it in confusion. But he fashions it anyway, for he uses the very technique that his father used to build a world. He uses speech. He uses inner talking. And that's how this whole vast world was brought into being. So he uses the same technique. He has speech and he has mind. But in that state of sleep, he brings about strange conditions. And he doesn't know he's the cause of the strange things around about him. As he begins to awake, then he awakes only as one being. He awakes as Christ Jesus. And the being called Christ Jesus personified in our Gospels is simply the awakened loving imagination. Okay, thank you for tuning in to this uh, episode today. I will continue next week with three propositions.